0: Hi, y'all. Welcome to Winchell Time. Day and air here. It is Friday, March 6th, around 11 a.m. And this show is going to go out today in a few hours. How are you, Ari?
1: I'm doing great. I actually got dressed and put on makeup and cleaned my ears and all that today.
0: (laughs) Cleaned your dirty ears. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So this show today is...
1: Jesse Proudman of Strix Leviathan. He's also on the council and he's been a wonder, wonderful part of the blockchain and crypto community here locally.
0: Not a sponsor of the podcast here, Winchell Time. <laughs> Correct. All right, so we went over a ton of awesome subjects, uh, really got to know them, did our usual lunch bit upstairs. Thank you for lunch. You're it was welcome. very good. Mm-hmm. And then I uh, came down here in the slowly evolving dungeon studio mm-hmm. and then uh, recorded a nice show this week. So we did have a schedule on how we were going to release some shows from last year, but decided to change it up because we talked about uh, some topical issues, namely the... Uh, coronavirus, COVID-19 that's going around right now. And so because that was topical, I decided to just go ahead and um, um, release. We decided to go ahead and just release his show today.
1: So Jesse is a serial entrepreneur. Um, He's most well known for his exit with Blue Box, which was sold to IBM. He bootstrapped it for nine years, starting in 2003. So as a person that did a startup that actually got a little bit of angel funding. I just, I can't imagine bootstrapping a company for nine Sounds years like in his basement. <laughs> um, and, you know, while he was doing that, he was having kids. He had two children.
0: Yeah, there's um, some pretty dramatic moments that I, he describes that I can't really imagine going through ourselves, even though we went through some hard times recently.
1: So Jesse bootstrapped his company for nine years, starting in 2003. He got a bit of first venture funding in 2012 and finally exited the company when he sold it to IBM in 2015. So amazing 12-year journey that we learned about. And now he's doing Strix Leviathan. He's the CEO and founder. And it was just amazing to hear his thoughts um, on being an entrepreneur, on being an investor, And just being a father and and a a community human, what were your favorite parts today?
0: I didn't know the uh, major points in that whole entire history from the 2003 founding to the 2015. So that's... I mean, yeah, that's a 12-year journey for his first company. Started it when he was 18. And Amazing. just going through that whole journey was uh, fascinating to hear. A lot of these folks that we get to know, it's very much like passing ships in the night here mm-hmm. in the Seattle area. You meet them at meetups and see them at events. And you know, So it's a really nice opportunity for us to be able to uh, get to know uh, these founders, local founders here, and trying to keep with that in-person, in-real-life uh, interview style that we want to do instead of doing stuff remotely mm-hmm. limits us to who we can talk to because we want to see them in real life.
1: Unless we travel, yeah. Unless we but travel, cr- but- yeah, you that's know, harder. That's,
0: that's gotten messed up lately. But uh, yeah, just, just a real testament to the value of in-person communications. And so now all my online communications with him, whether it's on Twitter or through Slack, <laughs> is uh, more nuanced. It's uh, it's a different layer of communication now.
1: Yeah. And you you also wear the uh, Strix Leviathan hoodie. Oh, yeah, we had the uh, matching uh, <laughs> hoodies on. <laughs> so I have to take that photo of you guys being twinsies.
0: <laughs> Please release that today. Yes, sir. With the show.
1: Yes, sir. So, Day, what's the price of Bitcoin at?
0: So, the price of Bitcoin is at $9,092. Just checked a moment ago and doing the Satoshi math. Mm. Again, if you do a search on hashtag Satoshi math, our page is on the first page of Google. And then what you do is you plug in the price of however many dollars, usually $1 is what I do, and then the price of Bitcoin, and it will kick out the number of sats that you get per Bitcoin. So, again, we're under 10000 dollars $9,092. And so that means you get... Why Drum don't you do the math? <laughs> Sorry, why don't you do the math?
1: I can't do the math. You do it.
0: All right, so when you do the Satoshi math, you divide the number one, representing one dirty US$, and you divide it by the current price of Bitcoin, decimalized into eight places. So it's the number one, divided by point zero 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 nine zero nine two, and you get...
1: Drumroll... 10,999 sats or satoshis
0: per Bitcoin.
1: And remember, satoshis are the smallest denomination of Bitcoins. It's sort of like dollars has cents, Bitcoin has satoshis.
0: Yes, and there are 100 million of them in every Bitcoin. Awesome. One of the other topics that we discussed was uh, about tail risks. And I think it's these uh, very small risk factors that could have an outsized effect on the markets. And Mm -hmm. so I just saw an interview on Bloomberg TV of Howard Marks. Mm -hmm. He's the co-founder and Mm co-chair of Oak Tree Capital.
1: Okay. I don't know anything about that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I I think he's a really well-respected figure. Um, And uh, what I learned uh, in this little segment that was on Bloomberg Mm -hmm. is that You can basically create the reality that you want because not only is he co-founder, which is really common, but Mm -hmm. he is Mm co-chair. You don't really hear about co-chairs very often Mm -hmm. in organizations. Mm -hmm. So as long as you got the right personality mixes in there, Mm -hmm. shout out to Pathwise, Mm -hmm. maybe co-CEOs, co-chairs, that sort of thing is totally an acceptable way to go in running and governing an organization.
1: Well, didn't uh, Google Alphabet have co CEOs originally? Yeah, actually, right. And people actually, you're were right. like really <laughs> weirded out by that, and they they did really well.
0: Like crazy well, yes, yeah, yes, yeah. So huh. you never know. Yes, exactly. All right, and so um, you know the the topic of the conversation was uh, have we hit the bottom because the markets have undergone about. I don't know, ten to thirteen percent correction in the last couple of weeks. Again, today's March 6th, but in the last couple of weeks the markets have been extremely, extremely tumultuous and uh, volatile. Mm-hmm. And so the uh, interviewer asked him if uh, we hit bottom, and he very smartly said, "I don't know." And I love that when people who are so experienced. Um, just declare I don't know and mm-hmm. I think it's easier when you're older to say I don't know and mm-hmm. you've been through a lot and mm-hmm. you can just very candidly bluntly say I don't know versus being younger and saying I don't know and then you know you're banished to the uh, <laughs> pile of rubbish <laughs> as oh. a young person.
1: <laughs> you hope not because you want people to feel comfortable enough saying I don't know and I'll get back to you if I do hear more.
0: Yeah. What's well, easier to say I don't know when when you make the rules? <laughs> anyway, learned a ton from this interview. He also has a book that came out in 2018 called Mastering the Market Cycle, which I'm going to probably put on my list here, maybe try to get it uh, checked out at the library. And final note, he did say in the interview that his organization is a buyer at these levels. So that was the pointy question that the interviewer asked, and he did go ahead and admit, yes, we are buyers of this. And he made a point to say that you don't know you've hit the bottom until you hit the bottom, and you still start going up afterwards which is reality. That's just the reality. And so, uh, yeah, he said he's a buyer at these levels. Gave me much more comfort in where we are in the markets and how we're doing.
1: Yeah, awesome. That was really, really good learning. I had no idea about any of that stuff.
0: <laughs> All right, awesome. <laughs> we well, have a good rest of the day. I'm going to work on the show and get it published here as soon as I can. So thank you for everything you do, Harry.
1: Thank you for everything you do, honey. I'm I'm about to go do some job interviews.
0: (laughs) Get a job. (laughs) I got to go get a job.
1: You already beat me. (laughs) I got a job. I got a new job (laughs) We can talk about that next time. Anyway, thanks to our listeners. We really, really appreciate you. We couldn't do this without you. And we really, really appreciate you being on the journey with us. Um, we're doing our best to slow down and try and explain all the terms because there's a lot going on here. But um, we really hope you enjoy these shows. We learn so much ourselves. And let's not forget to thank our sponsor, the WTIA, the Washington Technology Industry Association, representing over 1,100 technology companies in the Pacific Northwest. And a quick note on that, you know, we've been uh, really, really working hard on Senate Bill 6065 establishing a Washington blockchain working group. And so it passed the Senate pretty quickly, unanimously. It just passed the House last night um, after lots and lots and lots and lots of work.
0: Congratulations. Pre-congratulations.
1: Whew. And so now it's. Um, there are a few amendments made to it. So it's going back to the Senate for a quick review. And hopefully the governor will be signing it in a matter of a week or so.
0: Awesome. Yeah. I'm yeah. trying to be optimistic. A lot of behind the work, uh, a lot of behind the scenes work going on in that little puppy.
1: Yeah. Uh, I Now I know what it takes to pass a bill. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> and we're going to be so lucky if this even goes through because this is our first shot at this.
0: Oh, that's right. Yeah. A lot of bills sometimes have to get completely reworked. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, fingers and toes and eyes crossed.
1: And all the legislators are all itching to get out of session because of coronavirus, you know. They don't want to be but sitting the r- in their close quarters together.
0: Yeah, but uh, the reverse uh the, ver- the reverse way to think about that is though if they've it, it is if they have all been trapped in chambers working on this and no one from the outside has come in with it, then they're f- actually fine. It's That's a matter true. of if someone brings it in, yeah. then it becomes a big petri dish. Mm-hmm. But uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. they're they're actually at more risk going out into the public than they are if they're ju- you know trapped in chambers working.
1: Yeah. Well, let's pray for our legislators and senators and policymakers and their staff and hope this goes through.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: Don't forget to follow Jesse Proudman and Strix Leviathan, and don't forget rate review subscribe and share thank you so much and together we rise be nice y'all bye hey welcome jesse proudman ceo and founder of strix leviathan to our windshield time studio podcast dungeon aka studio
0: a lot of boxes, a lot of sideways couches we got going on. The nice red couch. Happy to be here. <laughs> Took a little while to get you in here, but yeah, really, really pleased to be able to get time with you and get some lunch and finally sit down with you uh, instead of being just passers-by ships in the night in the Seattle in the Seattle uh, neighborhood here.
1: So Jesse, for those that don't know anything about you, uh, why don't you provide a the highlights of Jesse? <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: We'll do the abridged version. So, I, this is my second go around on a company. I started my last company called Blue Box in 2003 from my dorm room in Puget Sound, University of Puget Sound in Tacoma. That company ultimately ended up being a cloud computing company. Uh, bootstrapped that for nine years and raised about 22 million in venture uh, beginning in 2012, and then sold it to IBM in June of 2015. I remember It's a great exit. Uh, Really phenomenal team. We look back, like that was the best possible group of people we ever could have worked with. So I spent about two and a half years after the sale at IBM, first year and a half trying to make the, the product work inside of Big Blue. And uh, then the last year, I found a role at IBM Ventures. Uh, they have a team based in Palo Alto. And uh, my job at the time was to look at building a accelerator program. So Microsoft had Microsoft Accelerator. Google has Launchpad. IBM didn't have a centrally run accelerator program. And so I wrote a prospectus and they took it up and got approval to get it launched. And so my job over effectively 2017 was to research the, the blockchain space. That was going to be one of the areas that the Accelerator focused.
1: And uh, for those that don't know, our audience doesn't always know what we do in tech uh, as intimately as we do. So Accelerator is for like new startup companies that want to grow very fast. Which is that how you would explain it?
2: Yeah, so we were trying to do something a little different at IBM, which I thought was pretty interesting. Traditional accelerators take startups and try to pair them with mentors and help set up systems and processes to, to help them scale. Like That's interesting. There's plenty of great programs, Y Combinator, Techstars, et cetera. Corporate accelerators are a little different. Most mm-hmm. corporate accelerators are often just sort of masking marketing functions inside of the, the entity. So they're, if you look at what Microsoft's doing, a lot of their objective is to get startups to spend money on Azure. Mm -hmm. Like that's how that they're measured. I wanted to do something different at IBM. I saw an entity like IBM that has relationships with all these huge companies. It's in a pretty big position of privilege to be able to know what buyers of software need Mm -hmm. and have exposure to these startups. And so the theory was that we could go curate a list of startups that solved problems that our enterprise customers had, mm-hmm. basically vet those startups for the for our customers, and mm-hmm. then do some matchmaking. Mm-hmm. So it felt like a really interesting opportunity to do something quite a bit different from traditional corporate accelerators to make it less about selling IBM products, to make it more about building goodwill and, mm-hmm. and sort of brand awareness. Unfortunately, it didn't pan out. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got to Q4 of 17, and there was no budget to launch that, that program. The research I had done over 17 really got me excited by the blockchain space. Mm-hmm. I've followed this space for, for quite a few years. So I went to college at University of Puget Sound with Nick Carey and Eric Voorhees. So Eric oh, Voorhees wow. went on yeah. and founded Shapeshift right. and then got Nick uh, introduced to the blockchain.com team. Uh, Nick Winanda found or co-found uh, that company. And so both of them have been involved in this space for a very long time. And I've always sort of looked over their shoulders and been really interested in what they're doing, but never really had the intellectual capacity to dive in And understand what's happening here it takes a lot of of time really to fundamentally understand this technology in this space Mm -hmm. didn't have that time until 2017 Mm -hmm. and so having now spent much of that year researching this space um, i got really excited and i got excited because it reminded me much of sort of the internet circa 97 Mm -hmm. so you have a bunch of protocols that work like they function you can do things with them but the user experience is pretty atrocious and mm-hmm. people are still trying to figure out like what are we going to do with these things long term and that that was really exciting and then you coupled that with an industry that it was just moving at a at a very fast pace mm-hmm. uh, the cloud computing space early on was was like that the blockchain space as i started to learn it felt very similar every day there was some new piece of of news or some new company launch new token whatever it was, that's what keeps an industry interesting for me. And it was an opportunity to get involved in, in something like that. Over the summer of 2017, I'd spent a bunch of time looking at these trading charts and kind of questioning, like, what is the value in a bunch of these assets? Mm-hmm. And began to form this thesis that really was the the kernel that got us to launch Strix Leviathan really concluded that this is an asset class that really lacks fundamental value. There mm-hmm. are valuation models that may exist, but they're not shared amongst market participants. So you may have a model that says Bitcoin should be worth this, that you may believe in, but the rest of the market doesn't share that same viewpoint. And so price, in my eyes, was driven predominantly by behavioral biases. Mm -hmm. And so that manifests itself into specific patterns in trading data. And so staring at these charts long enough, I began to see, you can visually see these patterns. And I thought, if you can visually see these patterns, you can programmatically see these patterns. And there had to be an opportunity to build software to do that. And so... The original Strix Leviathan idea was that the cryptocurrency markets were particularly ripe for algorithmic trading, and that I could build a set of software to ingest data off of exchanges, normalize it, store it, look for patterns, and then trade profitably from those patterns.
0: When you started Blue Box, you came from a computer science background, or computer engineering, or philosophy, or <laughs> yeah. what was your background there?
2: So I, I am a self-taught learner by far and large. My college degree is from the Business Leadership Program, so it's a, effectively a business degree with an emphasis on consulting. Oh. That program was really unique in that it was was sort of a, we had a cohort of about 30 students that came together, and we all studied business classes together. So it was a, a special program, one that I felt was really valuable, but certainly did not give, teach me computer science. You know, <laughs> I, I went to go look at doing a computer science minor. I think I got two or three classes in. And I got to the first algorithms class, uh, and I, I bailed out of that one very quickly. <laughs> and I'm just not a I'm not a structured learner. You know, I, mm. I learn experientially. That's you know, from the first company I started to now, it's it's kind of been the progression.
0: Okay. At Blue Box, were you primary or like 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 co-writing code? with, for the company? I mean, like, I, I'm really curious how that happens.
2: Yeah, so that company I founded in 03. I was the only employee to start, so I was doing everything. <laughs> right, So um, between writing all the infrastructure, running the physical servers, racking and stacking gear and data centers, doing the oh, invoicing, nice. taking technical support calls, like I did it all at the beginning. Um, as the company evolved, uh, I still wrote a big part of our software up until sort of 2008, 2009. Uh, we were about 20, 30 people um, transitioned out of of sort of the day-to-day technical role into more of the executive leadership role. Uh, we raised our first round of equity in 2012. That first year was was a pretty big struggle. I think being an experiential learner in a startup, can, there can be pros and cons. Effectively, as an experiential learner, you're making mistakes. And in a startup, that means you're spending money. Uh, and so as a bootstrap company, we had pretty constrained budgets uh, and that was reflected in sort of where I could go try things. As a venture back startup, the opportunity to go try new things increased pretty dramatically with the funding that we had, uh, but it was pretty costly.
0: But you had a whole bunch of assholes telling you what to do. With your we, money. We,
2: <laughs> we, had, we had great investors, uh, but it, at the end of the day, it's, it's just about being able to pick the right things to spend your capital on to generate mm-hmm. return and growth for the business. And mm-hmm. we had a, a a whole number of things go wrong between 2012 2013 2014 uh, as all startups do yeah uh, and as we got into 2014 i started to realize that my passion my skills were not aligned with what i was doing what i was good at was technical evangelism product strategy engineering And what I was doing was trying to fundraise, managing a board, trying to to hire, Mm. Uh, and those just they weren't well aligned. Mm. And I had a VP of sales uh, who, in his exit interview, specifically said like You need to think about what you're good at in this business." And at the time, I was really pissed. And then I, (laughs) it came off as like, "Oh, he's right. Like what I'm doing is, is not what I'm good at." Uh, And at that point in time, I was still the largest shareholder of the company. And I was like, well, for my own personal shareholder value, like I should think about, is this the right role for me? So I elected to go hire a new CEO in 20... Let's see, that was 2014. That's Um, So we spent about four months trying to find the right person. I found a wonderful individual, Matt Schultz, here in Seattle, who joined the company in May of 14. Um, And I moved back into that evangelism role. So I I took the CTO title and uh, effectively switched to... Uh, product strategy and, and sort of public speaking, building the brand of the business mm. versus kind of operating the business.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, well, that, you've uh, talked about that, Ari, uh, having the, I don't know, strength <laughs> or to basically humility. humility and strength, yeah, to basically realize that maybe as a founder, you shouldn't be in the CEO role and then Not you know, moving somewhere else. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Enough. I think. Um, it's hard as founders because, like, it's your baby. But there may be, I think, always being open to the idea that there may come a time where my baby needs a different kind of counselor and guidance. And I may not be the CEO or see whatever. I might have to leave even um, and let my baby go. So uh, I think it's hard for all founders, you know.
2: At the end of the day, I, in my eyes, it's all about this notion of playing to your strength and figuring out what you're good at. And there's, there are founders that can adapt and, and change their skill set as the company grows. And there's certain people that have a, a set of skills that they're really good at, and it sort of stays static. And I, I found for me that uh, my skills are in sort of a specific area and I operate and deliver the best when I'm, when I'm working in that area. And outside of that, again, I, I can do it, right. But I'm, Learning experientially and it's just costly, um, and so for an organization, it's it's better to have somebody that already knows the answers to these questions um, and that, that you're going to run into. It's sort of the stage
0: we are at,
1: and also loves it and thrives in it and might be more passionate about it too. Absolutely,
0: that definitely helps. You probably heard of uh, NetApp. Yeah, yeah. So network appliance. I worked with them for a little bit, um, long, long time ago. Uh, But I remember them having the two founders um, still around after like, I don't know, like 10 years after they had even IPO'd, something like that. Um, And my numbers may be way off, but it was funny that uh, they talked, the senior leadership team talked about the two founders like, yeah, so, you know, we were running this company, we have big investors on board, and, you know, after all the changes, we discovered, oh, they actually are really good evangelists. They're really good part of the team still. So let's keep them working (laughs) instead of, you know, scuttling them down into the depths of the dungeons or whatever. uh, Let's keep them, you know, in front of the customers, in front of uh, employees and keep them morale up and all that kind of stuff. And it worked out really nicely, really beautifully.
2: Yeah. And it takes an executive leadership team that can understand that and be appreciative of that style. And it takes founders that are willing to to step into that role, mm-hmm. true, um, and I, I think it's a fantastic combination, right? As a, a founder, you you know everything about the business. It is sort of the business is your your passion and your your beliefs, uh, and if you can effectively operate in that role, it, it can be really powerful. It can also go really badly <laughs> uh, for, for folks that struggle uh, to kind of be able to to let go. Right. Um, so right. it's a double edged sword.
0: Exactly. Exactly.
1: So you've you founded. Um- I mean, two companies now. And I know that, like us, you also have, you know, young children. How do you how do you balance it? Or what's life like at the Proudman's home with young children and startups and this, this sort of, like, life?
0: And I love the fact that you guys are the only crypto company, crypto-related company, that has swag for kids. And it's because <laughs> it's you <awesome>. have kids.
2: <laughs> yeah, the, the kid thing is really interesting. I, I think about this a lot mainly because I, I've i seen sort of discrimination against older founders, and I was trying to think through, like, why does that exist? And I've sort of come to this conclusion, it has less to do with age, it has more to do with kids. <laughs> <laughs> so when I, you know, I founded Blue Box when I was 18. Uh, we sold it, let's see, in 2015, so I was 30. Uh, and we had... Zoe, my oldest daughter in 2012, so two years before we raised, or I guess the year we were raising venture capital. Uh, and Owen was born in 2014, um, so a couple months before I hired uh, Matt as CEO. Uh, and so for the, the bulk of Blue Box's history, we didn't have kids, and so it, it for me, that ultimately equated to the amount of time I could spend working on the business it gives you this opportunity to pick and choose your time very carefully so there aren't there aren't other limitations there's not school to go to or uh, or performances or sports or or other interruptions in, in life um, and so when something is going wrong you have the ability to sit down and buckle down and work 100 120 hour weeks with kids now at at strix it's kind of changed that equation for me big part of founding this company was doing it in a way that would allow me to be present in my kid's life. Like that was really important to me. And so I've set this business up where I take my kids to school in the morning. I can go to all of their, uh, their sporting events or their performances. Like that was a core part of how we built this business. And I don't mind working hard. I love working hard, but I want to choose when and where I do that. I think looking back in hindsight, like blue box with kids, after they were born, was incredibly challenging. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I changed jobs with a newborn in the house at twenty in twenty sixteen. Yeah, it was crazy hard, man.
2: So we we it was twenty fourteen. Mm-hmm. So we raised our original equity round in twenty twelve. Mm-hmm. October was the first tranche in December of twenty twelve. My daughter was six months old. By <laughs> by October of twenty thirteen, we were bankrupt. Uh, we had to go raise a bridge mm-hmm. by February of 2014 mm-hmm. we were bankrupt again oh, and geez. I remember so my oh wife my had God. just given birth I was in the parking lot of the hospital I had to go move the car and I was on a conference call to close another financing round that had to close that day or we weren't going to make payroll oh shit uh, and so it's just it was a very <laughs> surreal experience right and you don't you lose to some extent, Sight of what's like you lose all sense of yourself because all you've got the kids going on and you're there supporting, there supporting my wife and my younger daughter, and my new son and trying to figure out that side of my life. At the same time, you have this sort of sinking ship uh, on the (laughs) you're trying to uh trying to captain. Uh, It was a really surreal and and challenging moment, Uh, but we we made it through, fortunately. And that I think sort of those moments that helped me try to figure out I want to do this one differently, like. Mm-hmm. And it, it it's a hard decision to make. If you're trying to build a big business, I should say, if you're trying to build a high growth business, you don't get the option to sort of pick and choose your hours. I think the business sort of dictates your life to a large extent. And you have to be willing to accept that. And you have to be willing to make sacrifices time-wise. I didn't want to do that with this one. I still want to build a big business. I still want to build a successful business. But I want to be able to choose sort of how that's done. hmm and it, it's that has had a material impact into everything about how we've we've created this company.
3: Mm.
1: So then let's let's skip to this company, Strix Leviathan. The name,
0: like, yeah. Let's, uh, let's explain the name. Yeah,
1: it's fun. and the yeah. logo, the owl. Like, I yeah. mean, my our, our kid, the lentil, loves the owl. So <laughs> yeah.
2: So Strix Leviathan. So we are a quantitative trading hedge fund. We've built software that allows us to watch what the markets are doing and make. Algorithmic decisions and then go execute those decisions and all the supporting pieces that go with that. So with that in mind, an owl is always watching, always listening, and an octopus is sort of multitasking with many arms, big brain. So we pull those two pieces together to represent the platform, the technology that we've built.
1: An owl, and an, an owl and an octopus. I just thought those were his feathers, but those are octopus <laughs> yeah, arms. they're
2: octopus arms.
1: Oh, interesting. So, so it's an owl that's so always name, watching. Yeah, okay. the
2: name Strix is effectively an, an evil owl uh, of the night, hmm. and Leviathan is obviously a sort of a creature from the deep. Hmm. Uh, and so we, we play off of sort of the mystique there a bit, but it's an owl and an octopus, sort of in spirit, uh, always watching, always listening. Big. Big brain, many arms.
0: I mean, Ari knows my mantra about uh, <laughs> branding and names and and all this, but it's all about being memorable. And so, if you go through all this effort to name your company and people can't remember the name of your company, I mean, you've objectively failed. And so, Strict Leviathan, very memorable. Nobody and can so, pronounce it, yeah. <laughs> but it is memorable. <laughs> well, that's actually uh, to, uh, maybe part of the charm of having a company like that, because you know, you go through a little, you know, little thing about teaching how to say the name or showing people how to say the name, but then afterwards, then they got it, you know? And so, yeah, I like it. Well, we, we wanted something
2: where people said, what's that?
0: Right, right, right. Uh Right. With with blue
2: box, uh, we had sort of this generic name and the logo was kind of boring and it was not interesting. Um, so I wanted something pretty different here. And with a, with a hedge fund, you're not a consumer business. We're not trying to get a bunch of eyeballs. Um, so at the end of the day, we wanted some branding and some naming that had a story that had some meaning, And that would prompt questions, and I think we've succeeded with the branding.
0: Yeah, totally, totally. Well, um, real quick, back on Blue Box. Since I uh, am not familiar with what y'all did, like what's the elevator pitch on what you guys did?
2: So at Blue Box, we took a set of open-source software called OpenStack, which was a pretty complicated cloud computing software, and we managed it as a service for companies. So at that point in time, you could go to Amazon and you could run on public cloud, but organizations like banks or health insurance companies and, uh, who were concerned about data privacy or just right. this notion of public cloud, they wanted that same capability, that that um, sort of API-driven infrastructure, but they wanted it in a private capacity. So we delivered managed private cloud for end users.
0: So was that the – that was the end – End entity, or was that from the very beginning? <laughs> yeah, that's,
2: that's what we ultimately, the business we sold to IBM. Oh, I see. Okay. The, the company originated as a managed hosting company, so you can think of it like Rackspace oh, yeah, yeah. early hosting. on in the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: yeah. I, I get the managed hosting. Yeah, yeah, that's good stuff. That's mm. good stuff, yeah. Uh, but not consumer. It was business to businesses. business. Yeah, yep. yeah. That's definitely a nicer place to be, yeah. Okay, so then back on Strix Leviathan. Now you guys have been building for two years, and you've been in the weeds like back writing code and doing the expen- experiential learning and doing and Yeah, and I've been all that. seeing
1: him like every time I see Jesse, yeah. he's like fingers are like s- the fire and steam is coming out of his fingers <laughs> on his laptop and he's like coding away and writing us furiously. Can we go back even further? So like 2017 was the uh, the heyday of the ICOs and all the crypto craziness And 2018, you know, Bitcoin went up to 20K and all that. That stuff didn't phase you.
2: That made this industry interesting to me. So I went back and I looked. I actually sent Sadie, my co-founder, a text message. It was three days after the Bitcoin all-time high in December of 17. I said, I, I have this crazy idea. I wanted to see if you're interested in it. And mm-hmm. at, at the end of the day, to be successful as an algorithmically traded hedge fund, like you need volatility. Mm-hmm. And this space has plenty of volatility. Mm-hmm. So that that was one of the attractive characteristics of it. Without that component, we wouldn't be able to make this an interesting business.
1: So I have just started learning about the idea of shorts. I'm I'm new to the investing world. So are you guys doing like sh- long and strategy? And... <laughs> just
0: kidding. <laughs> Go ahead. What he Go said. Ahead.
1: Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> the shorting, like um, um, making bets when things are going down in the other direction.
2: <laughs> yeah. So we we launched. Strix of ithan in January of 18, we launched our fund in April of 18. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so effectively May is our first month of, of reporting. If you look on a chart, May of 18 started a long, slow grind down. <laughs> uh, we did not have the ability to short early on in our business. Okay. Uh, that is a, a capability in this industry that was accessible, but but not easily accessible oh, interesting. in 18. Okay. And it took us a while both to gain the, the actual ability and then to have comfort in the strategies themselves. So there's sort of two requirements there. Okay. To short, yeah. you effectively are borrowing somebody else's coin, selling it, waiting for the price to drop, rebuying it, and then returning that coin to that individual. And uh... so in that scenario, the maximum gain you can obtain you can call it like 99.9%, right? If I bought if I borrowed bitcoin at $10,000 and it fell to one penny. Yeah. That's my maximum gain. My maximum loss is infinite. Right? Uh, if I borrow bitcoin at 10,000 and I sell it and it goes to 200,000, I've now lost a significant sum of capital. So the risk management side of your business needs to be significantly more robust when you're playing uh, with shorts than it does trading long uh, only that's a really good
0: explanation by the way in less than a minute of how shorting works yeah yeah that's really good oh yeah. Yeah. interesting so
2: we needed we needed to make sure we felt really good about the strategies I and our see, risk I management see. capability mm-hmm. we also needed the ability to actually complete that round trip borrow sell buy return mm-hmm. and there weren't many counterparties in the space that would effectively let you do that mm-hmm. that's changed a lot over the last 18 months 24 months mm-hmm. uh, And so it it took sort of both of those pieces, both pieces had to establish themselves in a functional way before we could really do that effectively Mm. in our portfolio. Interesting.
0: I think they call it in the business, I think they call it um, uh, infrastructure, like financial infrastructure, because the normal, you know, fiat markets, they've had all these mechanisms and systems and counterparties and all that stuff in for, you know, a hundred years or decades, I should say, um, whereas because Bitcoin has only been around for 11 years and all the other altcoins have been around less than that, uh, it, uh, it's taken a while to build out the underlying infrastructure for the cryptos.
2: That was one of our biggest lessons or, or pieces of hindsight going into this business. I think we thought there was a lot more established infrastructure here than there <laughs> ultimately was when we got going. So it was a big learning lesson on what we needed to build software-wise to support running this business, mm-hmm. what was available from third parties, whether it's from trade execution mm-hmm. uh, to third-party administration to generate statements to these lending borrow facilities. Um, all of it, we we sort of have had to figure out and evolve our business with as the market has evolved over the last two years.
1: Yeah, I think the tools are, at least when I was working in the space 2017-18, t- so uh, the tools were very archaic even in the uh, tax world you know just being able to do basic accounting on cryptocurrencies and so hopefully they've evolved now a little bit more in the past couple of years now no, that we're not, in 2020 really. they're still awful uh, <laughs> but,
2: but we we so that's we recognize that and we had yeah. to build a big portion of that into into this platform that that we operate wow. and that's what gives us we think at the end of the day this competitive advantage that mm-hmm. we've got this end-to-end software platform we've built that gives us portfolio management order execution reporting settlement and mm. uh, tax reporting Limited partner tracking. How do we track the investments of of all of our investors? Yeah. we've had to build all of that in house, and it it really is this differentiated set of software that that other funds don't have. Like other funds are literally using Excel spreadsheets or third party tools to kind of get pieces of of what
0: we're doing
3: mm-hmm.
2: in
0: our unified platform.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, all that uh, lack of infrastructure it's supposed to spell opportunity, right? It gives <laughs> right. you an
1: edge or a bigger moat. Yeah. As you build out all the software, and you're also a traditional software startup product guy, so that also gives you edge as head of Strix Leviathan, I would assume.
2: Yeah, we, we think so. And we structured this business where we thought there may be an opportunity to go sell this software directly to other funds. Mm-hmm. We've consciously made the decision to prioritize our own vehicle. Mm. We think it, that software platform by itself gives us a competitive differentiated fund offering in the space. Uh, and we also think at the end of the day, that's just not as many funds in the space as I thought there were when we started mm-hmm. and everybody's sort of paying they're paying their custodian they're paying their TPA there's all these fees that that add up to funds and by far and large most of the funds in the space are pretty small mm-hmm. like there are a couple large players and even large by traditional standards is a joke right in tr- in, in traditional wall street you're talking 40 50 billion dollars in assets as At a least. large fund yeah. like the largest funds in crypto may have 300 to a billion dollars Uh, of assets and you know there may be four of them five of them right right most of the funds in the space are in the five to ten million dollar range there's a handful in the 20 to 50 million dollar range so there's just not as many buyers of that software as we thought there would be Mm -hmm. Uh, and so it's actually worked out well for us not only or they're not the buyers but we think we can be uh, competitively differentiated with the software itself Mm
1: are you not afraid of cryptocurrencies still in 2020? Because a lot of people were scared off from, you know, post-2017, 18, now going into 19 and 20. Um, you're not scared off. And then um, I know the Bitcoin maximalists are very loud and very passionate. Um, how do you feel about that? Those are two questions.
2: We're not scared by this space. We, we think, if anything, the last two years have demonstrated that the type of strategies that we operate really do well in this space.
1: What about the Bitcoin maximalists? What What do you think they, they're getting wrong about cryptocurrencies in general versus like Bitcoin?
2: Last years have certainly been challenging, but if anything, they've, they've taught us a ton. We've now survived sort of two bear markets, mm-hmm. uh, May of 18 through kind of March of 19, and then June, July of 19 through December of 19. So we've, we've, survived through both of those. We've done well in the one bull market we've gone through so far, which was kind of Q2 of 19. Um, And those scenarios, we've learned a ton, right? I guess it's that experiential learning piece all over again. Uh, We we have discovered everything that we need to build. Uh, We've built it. And now we feel really well equipped to play these markets, regardless of which direction uh, things go. On the Bitcoin maximalist side, like this one is always interesting to me. I do believe in Bitcoin. I I think it's a wonderful technology. It's been around the longest. Mm -hmm. And so that gives it a a moat to some extent. It's got the highest hash rate of any of the the coins. Like there's a bunch of arguments I could make for why Bitcoin is is here to stay. And a
0: majority of the market capitalization, too, of the whole entire business.
2: Yep. there's, There's a bunch of reasons why I think it's here to stay. But to people that say it is the only asset that matters, to me, to some extent, that's like saying Yahoo in 2000 is the one <laughs> stock you should buy. Right? It just True. feels it feels naive, like the world changes, things change. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're we're experimenting with a technology and, a, and an economic system that didn't exist, True. you know, a decade ago. The whole notion of a fee market, how Bitcoin survives after the block rewards go away. There's there's all kinds of unanswered economic questions about this experiment. And that's how we really view it. It's an experiment at the end of the day. Like This is not a proven thing. Uh, this is an experiment where it survived a decade so far. We think there's a bunch of interesting characteristics about it. But to say that it, it will be the one thing that survives forever, to me, feels irrational. So. Our perspective is there's a bunch of assets in this asset class that are interesting. If we can get liquidity in them and we can trade them, that's beneficial to us. And that's that's how we approach it. We'll trade the things that, that we can get liquidity in and that move. Uh, Bitcoin is part of that, as are a number of other uh, coins in this space. And that's how we think about it.
1: In the world of startups and small businesses and entrepreneurs, I see you as what I call a cockroach. And take it in. Take it in a good way. A guy that will never die and never give up. Um, so I see you being around in, say, like 10 to 12 years, um, just like you did with Blue Box. What does the future look like in 10 to 12 years? Like, talk about it to me. Pretend you're the futurist.
2: Yeah. I <laughs> I refuse to put this hat on, quite honestly. No? <laughs> like nice. you know, I, I really? think at the end of the day, everybody <laughs> likes to predict. You know, they'll do their Bitcoin price predictions. Yeah. Or, they'll, or they'll do... Their industry predictions, like I have no idea.
0: Um, no. I, world I, reserve I, currency, n- world reserve currency. I have no idea, right? Like <laughs> I, I, I no? think it's,
2: it's too it's too hard to say. You don't think, it'll I be think there, There's a bunch of really interesting technological things that have been solved. Like to me, the entire blockchain underpinning Bitcoin is this technological marvel. There has not been an invention in history that has allowed for ownership of digital assets. Mm-hmm. Right? Like if I had my artwork digitally scanned and i sent you the copy you had no way to know that i didn't delete my version bitcoin solved that problem right and currency is an obvious implication and use case of that um, but there are many others that will will figure out over the next decade but i can't say like i don't know where where this is going i don't we didn't we are experimenting
0: I commend you for that answer because <laughs> way too many people, I mean, guys are really guilty of this uh, phenomenon of, uh, I guess, uh, over-conjecturing and, uh, well, what's the right term? Being overconfident in mm-hmm. their answers that they give, and it's very, very prevalent in the technical space, mm. but being able to say, yeah, you know what? I don't really know. You know, it's too early. and you know, it's, it's hard to say. You well, know? I,
2: that's, the neat thing about this business and why we approach it this way is that we don't have to pick winners, right? I think if you look at a lot of the funds in the space or a lot of investors in this space, they're effectively making venture capital style bets. They're saying, I'm going to take capital and I'm going to place it behind a certain set of assets with the belief that one or two of those will return very significant percentages mm-hmm. and the vast majority will fail. And that's one model. There's nothing wrong with that model. It's a successful model. Or you could argue it's a successful model. You could also argue it's been a challenging model. But,
0: well, they have an incentive. Yeah, they have an incentive
2: yeah. to, to make Bitcoin sort of the established dominant player. Mm-hmm. We approach this very differently, right? If we can get in and out of an asset and that asset moves in in price dramatically, we can make money on it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I don't need to know which one of these coins is going to be to survive. I don't need to have an opinion on the technical merits of any of these things. I can, and I do, but I don't need to. And it doesn't make sense for me to purport that opinion, particularly as somebody who's not kind of deep in the weeds Building applications on top of these protocols, mm-hmm. like I, everybody thinks we're a blockchain company. Like at the end of the day, <laughs> we're mm-hmm. a financial services company, <laughs> right, right? We u- right. we use blockchain to send money around, but that's right. that's the extent of our use. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's it's illogical for me to have a really a projection or a f- an opinion on it.
0: Sure, mm-hmm. sure.
1: So. The summary I'm taking away is Jesse problem has a good head on his shoulders. So last 15 minutes, I think we should do some current
0: affairs. Oh, no, no, no. I got some other stuff that I wanted to bring up, though. TPA. What is TPA? I'm not familiar with that.
2: Yeah, so TPA is a third-party administrator. So as a oh. hedge fund, uh, you are required legally to have a third party that generates your statements and validates your trades. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's a whole host of these companies that operate in the traditional space for traditional hedge funds. In the crypto world... There is a handful that have have made the leap uh, and provide services in in the space. And it,
0: I mean, um, I mean, one of the, I guess, um, esoteric parts of your business is that, uh, I mean, it is what it is. You are you are looking for family funds, family offices, accredited investors, high net worth individuals who are willing to take the risk of. Uh, being part of a um, new asset you know, class. high risk high risk business and a uh, new asset class, right?
2: Yeah, so we're we're a three C seven registered hedge fund, so we can take capital from qualified uh, purchasers. So that's five million in assets are up. So it's a pretty high bar. Um, so yeah, that is it's the family offices of the world, the high net worth individuals, and um, by far and large, it's it's sort of the the tech investor crowd that have had exits and sure. are excited by the space. Like we, most of our LPs today are investing in this. Because, yes, they think they can get a return, but really they want to learn. Mm-hmm. They're excited by the space. It's it's interesting to them. They want to understand what's happening. Uh, and they, they're treating their investment as a conduit uh, for information.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, we definitely do not qualify in that $5 million space. <laughs>
2: Maybe someday. <laughs> I mean, that's one of the big challenges in this space at the, at the end of the day. So we started out as a 3C1 hedge fund, which did accept accredited investors. And due to some regulatory uncertainty and opaqueness in how the – the regulations and the laws work, we, we were forced to convert last year. And so it's it's a frustrating reality. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Okay. And it's yeah. it's specifically because we are in Washington state. If we had been operating in, in any other state, it wouldn't have been an issue. And most of our competition or, or other funds in this space are 3C1 funds. Um, but because we're in Washington and Washington state has not made declarative rules on this space yet, right. we were forced to convert to 3C7.
1: So, we oh. need that blockchain working group so we can solve some problems. <laughs> 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 all right, so now can we go to cr- current of yours? Uh, no, I had some left. other
0: stuff. I had some other stuff. Your thoughts on stable coins because I'm continually amazed. I play around with the stable coins during all hours of the night, non banking oh. hours. All hours of the night. I love the fact that I can send a stable coin from one completely different entity, corporate entity, to another. And I see notifications that it's, you know, pending and then completed. I mean, I just love that kind of finality and I love that certainty, right? And it just, you you just get it, right? It's the whole, you know, short the bankers and uh, long Bitcoin idea. Uh, Thoughts on stablecoins?
2: Yeah, we've done a lot of business in this space over the last year. At one point, we were running an arbitrage strategy that was selling stablecoins for stablecoins, which was an awesome strategy. You sell a dollar. Uh, for a dollar and five cents, right? Uh, right, you know, I, I think so. This is
0: that's when they become unpegged with that they're not supposed to do <laughs> well.
2: They're always pegged because if you have the stable coin with the majority of them, you can redeem it for the actual currency. The The value you can redeem it for and what it trades for on an exchange, I think people conflate uh, that, right? Uh, but if it is a true US dollar backed stable coin, and maybe we should back up and and clarify what a stable coin is here, oh, sure, yeah. So A stablecoin is a token that operates on a blockchain where one unit of that token represents one unit of a currency in a traditional reserve account. So many of these stablecoins are US dollar backed. And so for each coin that is operating on a blockchain, there is one dollar in a bank account. So you can go look. US dollar coin is the largest US dollar backed coin today with the exception of Tether, which we can talk about in a moment. (laughs) Uh, But of the and last I looked, it was 500 million or so of market cap uh, mm. of token that is circulating in U.S. dollar coin. That means there's 500 million or so of capital sitting in in these reserve accounts. And so the stablecoin issuers they make their money by the interest float on the capital that they're sitting on. So they earn a couple percent on that 500 million dollars. That's a good business. Mm-hmm. And then as a as a user of that token, I now have effectively digital dollars that I can transmit on the blockchain in near real time, uh, from exchange to exchange or from, uh, from vendor to merchant, um, or yep. user to user. That's a really interesting technology. And arguably this is, you know, this is an example of something where people who say Bitcoin will be the universal reserve currency. Um, this is an example of something that makes me question that dollars work like dollar, yeah. the dollar is the they reserve really currency well. of, of the globe. Like my invoices come in dollars, my investments are made in dollars, uh, And until Bitcoin becomes that reserve currency, if it ever does, and I'm not certain that it will, people want to transact in in a stable currency. And so instead of sending a Bitcoin, which by the moment I send it might be worth 9,000 or 9,200 or 8,500 by the time you receive it, I can transmit a fixed amount of value with the same benefits of that blockchain using these stable coins. And I think it's it's fascinating, it works really well. Uh, So in that sense, you're seeing stable coins used to transmit capital between exchanges. You're seeing stable coins used, uh, to make faster wire transfers. We've taken, Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. We we've looked at taking equity investments from international investors in stable coins, just because it's easier to get the capital than yeah. going through the international wire system. Yeah. Uh, the fact that you can send it 24 by seven is fascinating. So in our business, we have to take new subscriptions before the end of the month. If it's additional wire, that has to hit on the Friday of the last day of the month before the wire cut off. two p.m. Yeah. yeah. If it's a stable coin, uh, we can take it right before midnight UTC, uh, before that, the that month, month ends. Yeah. yeah, so it gives us a lot more flexibility. Um, in our business. And it's it's just so much easier to use. You, th- you think about the experience using wires and it's so atrocious. Oh, and and the there's fees. still, there's a lot more user experience that needs to be done in, in the crypto space, even with stable coins. Like it's, they're still not easy to use, but they're vastly easier to use than wire transfers. So this is an area that that is fascinating to me. The big question I have is sort of, how does this ecosystem evolve and survive? There mm-hmm. are so many of these coins in existence mm-hmm. uh, Just in US dollar backed coins, you've got US dollar coin, Paxos, Stably, uh, True USD are sort of the the four permanent ones. There's new ones that start all the time. You've got algorithmically backed coins, things Mm -hmm. like uh, Maker and DAI. uh, And then you've got coins like Tether, which was the first sort of true stable coin um, and has a whole set of controversy around it. And so Tether is unique in that you can't easily redeem one tether for one US dollar. Right. It is arguably backed by US dollars, <laughs> although last year we discovered that it was 70% backed, 30% oh. of that was a dead instrument. Interesting. Uh, but you can't you can't go to Tether and easily redeem that for a dollar. Some people will tell you it's possible. I we know other trading desks that have redeemed it, so we know it is possible, but it's not easily done by every everyday people versus US dollar coin I can take that to to circle I can take that to Coinbase and instantly convert that to dollars
0: and You're talking about USDC USDC Yeah yeah that's yeah. the one that Coinbase uses also yep. Yeah um yeah that's the so the Tether one that one was a joke that was you know kind of insider in the industry you know, and outsiders look at it too, and just kind of like point and and laugh or giggle about that whole thing. But I mean, it's, it's interesting crazy. business, though, right? It's it's yeah. hard
2: it's hard to laugh or giggle at. I mean, that last I looked, I think their market cap was something like four billion dollars. Oh yeah, it's ridiculous. And yeah. so if they're earning float on four billion dollars, <laughs> like they're the ones laughing at the yeah. end of the day, right? And yeah. <laughs> it's arguably, if you look at the trading volumes, it is by far and large the highest pair traded. Oh, uh, between to, all to the other, other tokens, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. greater than U.S. dollar, greater yeah. than any other stablecoin. Right. The highest volume pair is Tether, uh, and it's enormous. Like I think a couple of days ago, it it was trading like four or five times its total market cap. So in a given day, if it's a four billion dollar market cap, it was trading like sixteen billion dollars worth of volume. And my numbers are probably wrong here, but it was trading multiple times its market cap. Uh, and that that's fascinating yeah now a lot of that is fake wash volume in the space right uh, but it, it's like it's an interesting one because it is it is arguably not transparent it is not easily redeemable yet it is the largest most established and consistent stable coin in the market
0: I mean in a business that has uh, been successful at posing al- at uh at posing so many questions of existential existence I mean then you're going to go back to tether and with all the issues that we just talked about it kind of makes you wonder well does all that stuff even actually really matter you know the 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 being able to redeem it and all that kind of stuff you know it, it just
2: it's at the end of the day these assets have value because people believe they have value. It's like the dollar, the U S dollar has value because people believe it has value because Mm -hmm. the government will accept it for my taxes because I can go pay my, my mortgage in it. People in this space believe Tether has value. Right. They believe it has a value of approximately one U.S. dollar. Right. Uh, and that support has been unwavering despite the fact that there is evidence to show it's not actually worth a dollar. <laughs> um, but because people believe it, it continues to be like that. Yeah. Again, I mean, I, I said at the beginning that there's no fundamental value in most of the assets in this space. Like I still believe that it's it's at the at the risk of sounding uh, contrarian to most of the people here these assets are worth something because we all believe they're worth something. And right.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, the, and then there's the contradiction that most Americans, uh, maybe a lot of most people around the world, don't even know that the dollar isn't backed by gold. We came off the gold standard in 1971. What is that, like 50 years ago? 49 years ago? And most people still don't even know that fact.
2: I mean, most people don't care because their <laughs> because dollars continue to work <laughs> and like, they, don't, they don't need to care.
0: Right, mm-hmm. right. I guess that's the whole point of Parker Lewis's blog gradually and then suddenly it's like you know the dollar just works and works and works and works and then all of a sudden within a few weeks or months it just all of a sudden stops working and then you have the you know global financial crisis of 2008 multiplied times 10 or 100 and that's the why you need to that's why you need to educate yourself about money and the sources of it and who's actually in control and you know all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. yeah. Current events? What do you think? <laughs> you got some ideas, thoughts on we stablecoins?
1: Well, no. I was not going to talk about points. Okay. All right.
0: Uh,
1: <laughs> so let's go into current events. Uh, coronavirus is a hot topic today. <laughs> okay, Another so, five people died.
0: Yeah. So today is March 2nd, about 2 p.m., and I'll just egregiously uh, share the price of Bitcoin. Oh, $8,900. Mm-hmm. Around $8,900. But uh, yeah, coronavirus... It is a very hot topic now. Sorry, I I talked to you. Go ahead.
1: No, just Jesse, what do you think? Is this going to tank the markets, the stock markets, you know, kill, you know, 500 million people over the next one year? How long will this be around? Um, Are you scared?
2: So last week, I think, was a fascinating week in in financial markets. It's in all financial markets. We saw sort of the fastest ever decline in the S&P. Uh, fastest ever correction, I should say, 10-point drop in six days. All asset classes were down last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this notion of sort of gold being a safe haven or crypto being a safe haven asset, like both gold and crypto were down. Crypto is actually, or Bitcoin in particular, was down more than the S&P. Yeah. So it was a fascinating week to watch. I think the world has dramatically underappreciated the impact that coronavirus will have on the global economy. Like, the virus itself doesn't seem that bad. Like, I think a lot of people will equate it to a flu. I think not having had it yet, <laughs> it's, hard <laughs> to, it's hard to say what the actual impacts are. What we do know is that it requires pretty intense medical intervention for people that, that get a serious case. Yeah, you were
1: saying, like, they have to suck stuff out of people's yeah, lungs. you get, you get pneumonia.
2: Like... It requires CT scans. It requires all kinds of modern medical services to effectively diagnose and cure uh, high risk cases or, or bad cases, um, and so I, I think there's a lack of appreciation for how overwhelmed our medical system can get as a function of that. Mm-hmm. And I think that appreciation will start to become apparent. We're seeing it in Italy. Um, mm-hmm. Last week, we started to see the the first ramifications of overworked hospitals in Italy. And I think, quite frankly, we're going to see it here in Washington over the next two weeks. Um, today, in fact, right before this recording, we saw the the state health department. Uh, beginning to suggest that the Washington healthcare system is already being taxed, mm-hmm. and we have six deaths and I think eight diagnosed cases in less than a few days.
1: In less than a few days. Yeah.
2: The reality is that this device has been transmitted in the community for the last couple weeks, and yeah. the CDC has not been doing adequate testing at all of people here. They've been testing people that have travel links to China, uh, but. They've not been doing community testing, and so now that that's started, I think we're going to see a surge in cases. so yeah. I think is going to have a ripple effect. You're going to start to see companies shut down their offices, and I think we saw F five do that yep. today. You're going to see conferences start to get canceled. You're going to see sporting events canceled. School shut down. School shut down. And it, to some extent, it's this is an interesting question. Like, are are we making a situation worse through fear, or are we making are we making s- sort of the situation better by limiting transmission. I, I don't have the answer to that. The other big question that I think is largely unanswered is what the longer-term economic impacts are going to be. Yeah, We're starting to see production numbers coming out of China uh, and those are not encouraging. Uh, no. You're starting to see, I think I read one stat that said container shipments coming into the port of, uh, of Longview. Long, yeah, Los yeah. Angeles. Down 25% right. in January, I believe. Yep. Uh, so the ramifications of that it's going to ripple out into different parts of the economy in ways that I don't feel like there's a broader appreciation for. And we had an economy that was on the longest bull run in history. Mm -hmm. It's sort of, it's been propped up through financial engineering by the government Mm -hmm. and it's sort of been waiting for something to kind of kick it off the ledge. Mm -hmm. This feels like that has the potential to, to be the, the impetus for a pretty large worldwide recession. And hopefully I'm wrong. Hopefully that that doesn't play out that way, but I I definitely see a scenario where that's the case, Uh, and I I don't feel like, at least in the U.S., we have enough of a robust plan on how to prevent that.
1: We don't, and this is also the year of elections, right? The year of debates in 2020, and so um, it's supposed to be a good bang year, year of the rat, year of prosperity typically. So it'll be very interesting to see that what actually happens the remainder of this year.
2: The most interesting thing to me about this whole experience though, as it relates to sort of my, my business or to, to Bitcoin, mm-hmm. you, you, you hear all the time that Bitcoin is this uncorrelated asset class. It's supposed to be a safe haven asset that in times of crisis or in financial collapse that Bitcoin will appreciate in value. Uh, and a lot of folks will point to sort of the last decade of correlation. You can run correlation matrices across the S and P for the last decade without failing to appreciate that we've not had a major recession over the last decade. We've had Mm -hmm. bumps. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had sort of 2015 uh, sort of challenges over the last decade, but we've not had a true worldwide recession. And so the sample size to actually run correlation over here zero. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, My belief is that this asset class doesn't act as a a safe haven. This, in my eyes, is an asset class that is treated as a speculative investment. It's it's being treated similarly to venture investments. Mm -hmm. It's coming out of similar allocation buckets. Mm -hmm. And what happens in global recessions is that people stop spending capital or deploying capital into risky speculative areas. Mm -hmm. Like venture investment slows down. I think investment into this asset class will slow down. We're, we're fortunate in that the timing of all this is happening in conjunction with the Bitcoin halving mm-hmm. in May. And so we get this reduction in supply uh, that's coming online to the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I don't necessarily believe that that will create this big supply shock that that everybody's talking about. I think we're just going to see capital being with, withdrawn from this market. So it'll be really interesting to see how it, how it plays out. Uh, but I, at the end of the day, we're lacking in appreciation for the broader impact I think this virus could have mm-hmm. on the global economy.
1: Have you purchased your N95 face masks?
2: No, because they don't work. <laughs> they don't work? No, the virus what is three, mean? is three microns and the mask protects against five micron viruses. Oh, interesting. So uh, like <laughs> the stats that I've been reading say that they're not an effective source outside of, like it helps prevent you from touching your face. At the end of the day, like the medical <laughs> clinics need those masks more yeah. than, than consumers. I will be safer if I just stay at home and avoid sort of interaction in public places. I am fortunate in that I have that ability. I think we don't have an appreciation for for how many people cannot w- work from home. Right, you know, right, right. I think everybody's saying this will be an interesting test of corporate culture and the ability to work from home but what about the Amazon delivery drivers or yeah. the, the people that make food at restaurants or there's a whole, the whole service industry doesn't get that luxury. Ooh. Um, and so we're we're going to see, I mean, when, when you're, when you work in a hourly job in yeah. the service industry and you're told to stay home for two weeks, Ouch. what do you do? Yeah. You can't make rent. It's going to be a fascinating economic case study. And I think it's going to be challenging for a lot of people, unfortunately.
1: Man. So talking about corporate culture, another theme that's going on in the news today is around diversity and inclusion. As a white-looking male,
2: <laughs> what is, how do you feel about that? How do I feel about diversity and inclusion? You know, I, I've, it's always been an important part of building uh, teams. It was an important part for me at Blue Box, uh, and it continues to be an important part in this company. Uh, when I went out to go build a co-founding team, I wanted to make sure we had, um, sort of a, a mixed team. I just didn't want a bunch of, of, white guys. So Sadie, my co-founder, um, was like half our team, uh, has been women mm. uh, at various stages in time in, in the company. I think at the, at the end of the day, it's really important just to get mixed ideas, right? Mm-hmm. And crypto is notorious for this. We live in yeah. an echo chamber. <laughs> Everybody says and thinks the same thing. And that happens in a company when you all get the same, uh, composition of, of ethnicity and, and gender uh, and so being able to have differing opinions from because people are coming from different viewpoints is, is really important for me um, and a big part of how we built this business
1: yeah I noticed you, you had you chose a woman co-founder your CEO Sadie, so that was interesting and you're also doing a distributed team with the the co-founders how's the, how's, how do you do that and how do you feel about that or didn't that, that scares me a little bit
2: yeah we I learned a, quite a bit about this at Blue box so at blue box we had a central office about 35, 40 people, and then we had about 25 people that were distributed. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we learned, or I learned quite a bit about what worked and didn't work there. Mm -hmm. At Strix, we started uh, largely centralized. We had most of us here in Seattle. uh, We had one person in Texas, one person in Bellingham. We all worked out of a centralized office. In October of 18, we shut that down and went full remote. Mm. And then earlier, late in 18, uh, my co-founder Sadie moved to Barcelona, so she's now working uh, remote from halfway around the world. Yeah uh, I think it's it's worked out well um, and it's worked out well for a number of reasons. One, this is a 24 by7 business mm-hmm. and so having a team that is geography that is distributed geographically helps from the just covering time zones. Mm-hmm. Additionally, I think because we're all remote, it forces us to really be cognizant about how we communicate. The biggest challenge we had at Blue Box was where two-thirds of the company was centralized and one third was remote. Oh. And we struggled we struggled immensely trying to figure out how to keep the culture intact across the organization, how to ensure communication effectively made it to the remote people. Yeah. Because we're all remote at this business, that solves that problem. Like everything is done in Slack or, or in our we do a once-a-week video stand-up with everybody um, where we we save sort of media topics. The biggest challenge, I think, is that body language is such an important part of communication. The nonverbal communication. The nonverbal yeah. communication. Like Most of communication comes from that body language. And we'll, we'll often find ourselves getting into this rat hole on Slack. Where we're debating some minute issue that could be solved in a four-minute conversation, uh, but we'll spend two hours debating it in, in Slack. And it, <laughs> you know, it takes a while to be like, all right. We gotta just pause this and let's take it to the the next the, team meeting, right? And right. just talk about it, uh, talk about it face to face, which then inevitably takes two minutes, right? Like, yeah. uh, so it's kind of a constant reminder in that capacity, but I like it. Again, at, at the end of the day, a big part of this business was being able to work when and where I want. Um, I don't mind working hard, but I want to choose when and where. Um, and being able to support that for everybody involved mm-hmm. uh, has been a, an important part for us. I
0: don't know that I've seen many sort of write-ups or articles or studies done based on that idea of maybe companies need to do all one or the other, you know? Yeah. So Jason Fried, Basecamp, like he's a real big proponent of remote work. He has a and great book, remote. Yeah, he's got lots of great books. <laughs> um, but basically, yeah, yeah m- maybe that is part of the, uh, I guess, um, you know, right formula is either having it all one way or the other. And if it's majority one way, uh, then it's just too hard to manage, maybe?
2: I, I think you can do both. I think it just takes a lot of conscious effort, and that's the challenging part. Like when, when you're in a startup, there are an unlimited number of things you can choose to prioritize your time on, and trying to think through how to preserve culture across remote teams and local teams, that often falls to the bottom of the list, because it takes work but it's easy. I can, nothing is, you're not required to do it. And so it it very quickly falls to the bottom of the list. And so it's important to have that constantly be part of your, your daily rhythm. Sure. As you think about how you operate your business, what cadence you operate it with, kind of the tools you pick really being thoughtful.
0: Sure. Yeah. I got an idea of a topic here. Um, so being cognizant of times is two fifteen, but I'm going to just jump in. So, this idea of uh, homeland security. Uh, homeland so security. it seems like a lot of people, most people, have already forgotten about the emissions scandal that Volkswagen um, you know, put the United States under. You know, so this was hardware and software that deliberately defrauded emissions tests in the U.S., and so this is hardware and software, again, that came from another country into the U.S. Mm. And so recent, more recently was all the scare about using Huawei equipment, communications equipment, mm. right? And so me being technical, and I'd love, to, I'd love to hear your opinion because of your technical background, but it is just so uh, virtually infinitely complex, the amount of hardware and software that goes into doing any sort of task, Right. And so I tend to take a more paranoid approach when it comes to uh, the unknowns of downloading any sort of software onto my phones or computer or anything. I just get really paranoid now, especially more paranoid. And so you know, that's, I think, the more risky aspect of Bitcoin and all the sister you know, currencies and tokens, which is it could literally go from $10,000 to $100,000 or it could go from 10000 to zero because one little bug... Basically, gets discovered and and so how do you reconcile that sort of uh, existential you know bug hardware or software in this asset class?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. It's it's this constant tail risk question that we think about a lot as we think through our portfolio and we we see this all the time. So recently, over the last week or two, you've seen a bunch of these DeFi applications. Mm -hmm. So DeFi is distributed finance. So these often are sort of lending. Uh, lending institutions or uh, distributed exchanges, DEXs that operate on the blockchain. And over the last couple of weeks, we've seen a number of these get exploited, not necessarily because there's anything wrong in the protocols themselves, but as you start to chain multiple protocols together, you can come up with pretty creative ways to game the system. And in those events, I think the cumulative losses uh, have been just under a million bucks in total. But I mean, those are real losses to real people. This is a space where you've got sort of Young tech entrepreneurs that are playing with real dollars, <laughs> mm. yeah, and I think it gets lost on a lot of people, yeah. And I think that's part of the reason you start to see momentum uh, slow down on a lot of these projects, right? Bitcoin Core often gets criticized because it moves very slowly on right. uh, on adding features or innovating on the on the underlying Bitcoin protocol, but there's a reason for that. Uh, you know, Ethereum, this V2 Ethereum. Mm-hmm. Uh, project has been stalled or delayed for years and people get very critical that it will never launch but there's a reason for that like there are billions of dollars operating on top of these platforms uh, and it takes a lot of thought and consideration and care to go into that and then you step one level further and you look at all these these smart contracts so these smart contracts yeah, more run complexity on, yeah, yeah yeah they they run on top of of languages like ethereum or platforms like ethereum Many of these smart contracts, you sort of write them once to the blockchain, they can't really easily be upgraded, uh, and they're visible to, to other market participants. So market participants can see what is in that contract, how it was written, which is sort of a recipe for disaster. And to some extent, it's like it's it's a great honeypot for mm-hmm. hackers to mm-hmm. say, there is real capital uh, locked up in these in these contracts that I can go exploit and I have visibility of the source code. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it it is a it's a very concerning component of, of this entire space. I don't know what the solution is.
0: Right, uh, and
2: I think you, to some extent you just have to accept have that that's beer. a tail risk. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a tail risk in as participating in this space, and um, you're going to be susceptible to those. And right, uh, it's part of the speculative nature. of of this business. This is a great, another great example of why I think when people say Bitcoin will be the only language or the only coin that that lasts or will be the global worldwide reserve currency, like these are unanswered questions Mm -hmm. uh, that, that make that hypothesis very questionable in my mind.
0: Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. All right. That's all I got. Oh, I want to add my two cents. Can I add my two cents about uh, coronavirus? Sure. Go for it. (laughs) I mean, so we talked about this at lunch, but um, thank you again for lunch, Ari. You're delicious. welcome. <laughs> very good. But, uh, you know, I, I kind of wonder not to downplay or be insensitive to the, you know, health uh, of people and the suffering that people are going through because of, uh, you know, the COVID-19. But I, I was kind of wondering, you know, it's like the common cold you know, it comes around every single year. There's no cure for the common cold. You know, the uh, flu, the seasonal flu that comes around every single year, they tell us like crazy, go get your flu shot every single year. You know, I kind of wonder maybe, um, you know, that I definitely do believe, like, like you, Jesse, I do believe that there will be at least a couple of quarters of substantial material economic slowdown that's going to show up. But then after, I mean, basically everybody – gets it because it seems like such a latent, hidden kind of a virus. Um, You know, basically after everyone gets it and those in poor health or very young children, babies get it. And then, you know, it takes a little while for the human race bodies to naturally have enough antibodies and everything. Everybody will get it every year or have it all the time and just be another factor of, you know, Mother Nature trying to do her duty and and kill us (laughs) you know if, if mother nature doesn't get us then you know father time will eventually you know that whole thing so let's talk about transparency because that's one of the most vital characteristics of this space like not knowing what the fed is doing is kind of an issue not knowing what other central bankers all around the country is doing not knowing about the technology you know so on and so forth so can you speak to the idea of transparency
2: Yeah, I think there's two interesting components here. So the the first is kind of at the protocol level. So a lot of people will criticize Bitcoin because they'll say it's predominantly used by drug dealers or (laughs) other illicit black market activities. uh, And they'll say that's the predominant use. And I think the interesting thing there is that many people don't realize that the blockchain underlying Bitcoin is incredibly transparent. And it shows every transactional record from day zero Mm -hmm. to now. And so it's very easy for law enforcement to trace these transactions from party to party. Mm -hmm. There are tools and technologies that try to make that a little bit more difficult. Coin mixers are an example of that. But by far and large, this is not an anonymous network. No. This is a pseudo-anonymous network, and it's very easy for providers to identify addresses. Like for us, for example, every exchange that we interact with or every OTC counterparty we interact with They know the addresses we use. They know that are our addresses. And I'm sure a number of those participate in these chain analysis companies. And so our name is now tagged to those addresses. And these companies know where all of our capital goes. Like That's a a really interesting element about this space that I think is not widely known. The second piece that's interesting to me about transparency is particularly around funds in this space. So crypto funds, by far and large, are very opaque. You write capital into a hedge fund, they go make investments, you may get a monthly statement, and that's about the extent of what you know about what the fund is doing. And as a function of the high growth that's occurred in this space, you ultimately end up getting a lot of scam funds that have started. There was one that was busted about two weeks ago that raised about $7 million mm. in total capital, uh, including from Major League Baseball players. Oh, wow. man. That, like just sucks. Brutal. And it was a complete Ponzi scam. Like they didn't oh, buy any crypto at all. Oh. Everything was just used to finance their lifestyle. And that's a shame. Like it's bad for yeah. the space. It's bad for the participants. Everything about that's awful. Uh, and I think that keeps a lot of institutional capital out of the space because there's that everlasting fear that you don't know where your capital is. Yeah. And so a big part of our business from day one has been. One, ensuring that we set this company up the right way, the legal way, the compliant way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as we've evolved and we started to figure out other ways that we can bring transparency into the fund space, um, we've been working on an uh, investor portal. And so the mm-hmm. idea here is that our investors will be able to log in, get updates on their their fund balances, get performance updates, understand the news and the articles that we're looking at. And again, kind of satisfy that intellectual curiosity, which probably prompted them to make the investment in the first place right. all through this portal. And we think that's pretty differentiated. There's no other fund that we're aware of in the space that offers anything similar. Uh, and at the end of the day, people want to trust that their capital is, is going somewhere safe and earning a return. Yeah. And uh, if you can't reliably do both pieces of that going right. forward, I, I think that'll be a pretty big concern for many funds in this space.
0: Which is ironic because, uh, you know, like you said, tons of transparency in this space with being able to view the uh, transactions in, in whatever blockchain it is. But uh, being able to log in and see your funds and track the history and all that stuff, that that is basically table stakes for the old legacy financial institutions. But I
2: think that's a big part of, of the confusion in the space, right? Like it takes ah, so long yeah. to understand... What's going on here? We we had an LP that we were speaking with last month who thought that trades that happened on exchange were recorded on the blockchain, and we went back and forth explaining that effectively the capital going into an exchange is recorded on the on the blockchain. So if yeah. I send Coinbase capital, you can see that transaction on the blockchain. But once Coinbase holds it, it's just stored in their right. centralized database, and every trade that I'm making at Coinbase is just a database entry yeah. on their side that is not visible to the public. Yeah. And we've we've had multiple LPs. Uh, get confused on this point uh, because you you think like, Oh, all these things are happening on chain. You can track all the flows. Uh, It's not at all how it happens. The the unique thing is that you do get coming off of these exchanges. You do get actual trade match data. So I can go to Coinbase. I can go to Binance. I can go to Bittrex and I can see in real time, every trade that's made on those exchanges, they stream that and they stream it for free. That's unique. I cannot go to the New York Stock Exchange and get a free stream of every trade. Right. I can go pay a bunch of data brokers a significant sum of capital to get that, but I can't do that on my own. That's fundamentally unique about this space. So mm. There are elements that make a business like ours more successful or, or give us the ability to be more successful, right. um, but it is not on-chain where, where these transactions <laughs> are occurring.
0: That's a really, really good uh, yeah point to know. Yeah, totally. Mm. totally. Interesting. All right.
2: Well,
1: Jesse Proudman. Anything else? If people want to learn about you and uh, Track Keys or Strix Leviathan, what's the best way to keep in touch and follow you?
2: Yeah, our website is probably the best place for information on the the fund and kind of our news. So we update the blog uh, pretty frequently. Uh, So it's strixleviathan.com. And then I'm on Twitter at Jesse Proudman, sharing all kinds of thoughts. (laughs)
0: Cool. And we'll
1: have those in the show notes for everyone to be able to
0: share that. I like your uh, landscape pictures that you share every once in a while (laughs) of the city. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully, it won't make uh, people want to move here because we have too many people here as it is. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks for coming in, man. Seriously. It was a pleasure to be here. Really enjoyed it. Yeah.
1: Learned so much. And uh, thank you for everything that you do for our community. And uh, thank you to our listeners. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. And uh, if you want to learn about Jesse and Strix Leviathan, make sure you go and check out those show notes and connect to them on Twitter.
0: Thanks to our sponsor, WTIA, for making it possible for us to be able to do this podcast.
1: Yes, the Washington Technology Industry Association, representing over 1,100 technology companies in the Pacific Northwest.
3: We'll yes, oh, we a member. Yes, yeah. we are. <laughs>
1: and we're also part of the Blockchain Council, of which also Jesse is also part of the council. All right, well, thank you all. Together we rise. All right, thanks. Thank you.
0: Bye. All right, all right, all right. Welcome to Windshield Time, y'all. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is a non-technical, fun, informative way to learn about money. Bitcoin, blockchains, crypto, and digital assets for busy parents and working folks who are curious about these new technologies. Day, Ari, and their guests talk about these evolutionary systems of money and what they do, y'all. Because what part of your life does money not touch? This podcast is not financial advice, and your reactions are your total and complete responsibility, y'all. Now, thanks again, and enjoy the show. I'm gonna turn you up just a little bit here. All right, so, Ari, give me some audio. Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, Amen. <laughs>
0: <laughs> if you were in a different setting, then uh, you would also have headphones, but uh, you're in the you know the home, home. studio. Dungeon studio, so only headphones for me while I'm calibrating audio. So tell me a quick story or something. It's a nice, nice couch in the dungeon right there. <laughs> <Good> red color. <laughs>
2: We're in
1: the uh, sideways room. Yeah, There's no up nor down.
0: It's uh, it's not a real podcast studio unless you have a red couch on its side. <laughs> that is how all podcast <laughs> studios must operate. <laughs> Pomp Studio, his video studio is upgraded. Have you seen that lately? I have not. Lately? Yeah, so he's got a like a 90-degree table, camera here. He might have a two-shot or a three-shot going on, and then one person there, one person there, so they can kind of sort of face each other but also face the cameras. Nice. It's a nice setup. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: All right. Are you guys going to do your own Could like regular fun, podcast or anything like that? No. no.
1: no. no. Yeah, I should to do. Smart
2: guy.
0: We have nothing worthwhile <laughs> to say on a regular basis. Smart guy. <laughs> uh, it's a lot more work. Unless you... Unless you don't care about the audio quality, then I might I might write an eighty page monthly tomb <laughs>
2: about X-Men. But
0: Baby X-Men. <laughs> not not
2: a podcast. All right. Cover
1: your mouth. Cover your mouth.
3: <sighs>
0: oh, Terrible feeling when you have to sneeze. When you're about to sneeze. <laughs>
1: And you don't. Hi, y'all.
0: Give it a second, okay? So he uh, misspelled. So at the very, very end of the show, so he, the way he spelled it was S-T-R-I-X-L-E-V-I-T-H-A-N. He oh, missed hey, the A. <laughs> <laughs> so I took it out. We're not journalists, so I went ahead and took it out because, uh, you know, it's it was an honest mistake.
1: Are we going to start or are you recording already?
0: I told you we're already hot. Already hot, okay? So I'm going to let you know, okay? Outtakes. Hot. I told you the thing.